Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm Amanda, and I left academia about one year ago to become a scientific editor for grants and manuscripts and an editorial manager for a science website. I'm Ian, and I've recently left academia to move into a science communication, editing, and publishing career. And I'm Dr. PMS. I've left academia about two years ago to work as a biotech salesperson, and I'm still in recovery. We're in various phases of transitioning out of academia, and we'll share insights, advice, and problems we encounter at each stage. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Today, we are doing something different. We are here with Ian and Amanda, as always, but we also have Dennis with us uh, from Science for Progress podcast and we will try to do a joint podcast between an exchange of podcasts between us Um, so because Dennis is a recovering academic as we are uh, we were going to talk about his transition and how he started his project and and also he has this podcast to try to advocate for science. So we also are going to talk about how we do advocate for science, even as recovering academics. So Dennis, he is, um, he's currently on a self-financed sabbatical. He's doing uh, science advocacy through his Science for Progress project, and he is now in the process of figuring out how he can apply himself as a freelance scholar. Um, and he's been out. Uh, he's been working in academia for. He's been out of academia for seven weeks, uh, so that's uh, he's very fresh and. So let's start. Dennis, welcome to our podcast. Hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about um, how you you thought about leaving academia and when that thought started and how was your transition? Well, so... um, I have been doing my PhD and I was really excited about doing a postdoc and I really wanted to become a professor or a PI or a leading scientist. There was always the the drive and I was going into the postdoc thinking that I would find a lot of support uh, becoming a leader and honing uh, leadership skills while also doing the scientific work, which I also like very much. Um, I'm, I've been doing um, behavioral and systems neuroscience, and you can do a lot of behavioral experiments where you can, and, and one of the things that I've been doing was to implement new methods. Basically, in every lab that I joined, I had to first implement new methods, et cetera, et cetera. And this is uh, time-consuming work, mm-hmm. um, but I seldomly got to the point where I could uh, have somebody work together with me, which would be after I implemented the method. And uh, I've actually talked to uh, my advisors and uh, uh, the idea of having somebody work together with me wasn't greeted with a lot of uh, excitement. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, I've been basically repeating what I've been doing as a PhD student twice since then. So I join a new lab, I learn about the new uh, field, subfield that I joined, and then I build a new apparatus, and then I do like one thing, uh, and that's that. Um, but this was not enough for me anymore. So it felt like I should be progressing professionally and as a mm -hmm. person, and I didn't feel like I was getting the experience that I wanted. And uh, yeah, I ended up doing experiments for hours in the basement, literally, uh, in the darkness. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, I just didn't feel like, it just didn't feel like a good uh, way to spend my time after I, I had so much experience. Um, so I wanted to apply myself in a, in a more, in a more efficient way, but that didn't happen. Um, I don't want to go into the, the, uh, the details of that, um, because I'm probably biased in my views anyways. <laughs> uh, we all, we all uh, are. We all are. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then, so I wasn't really happy with how this was going, and you know how frustrating this can be if you're in a job and you feel like this is this is all not really what you want to do. Yes. Uh, and then on top of that, every uh, fellowship application I ever wrote was rejected. <laughs> and uh, while they are, while in the beginning, so usually my projects were got really good scores, and the institutes got good scores, and my PIs got good scores, everything got good scores, except for my CV. Mm -hmm. And that oh. is also quite frustrating. Yeah. And the last fellowship uh, rejection feedback was that I didn't have enough papers. And that would mean in order to reach what they said they wanted from me in papers would have meant at least four or five years doing what I was doing and was not happy with uh, in order to get the papers out. And at that point, after seven years as a postdoc, four years as a PhD student, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And then I decided not to extend the contract. I stayed a little bit longer in order to save money for my self-finance sabbatical. Um, yeah, so so that was how I decided uh, to leave. Mm -hmm. Now, the second question um, mm -hmm. was uh, the transition phase. So my transition basically started earlier than my actual leaving because mm -hmm. uh, I knew one and a half years beforehand that I was going to leave. Um, I was not too proactive about uh, getting a job or something because I really wanted to take a break, which is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I also had been an organizer for the Science March in Lisbon. Oh. So I'm in Lisbon in Portugal, and we've been doing the Science March in 2017. And I was really excited about that. I thought that was a really good cause and there are really good uh, reasons to continue with this kind of advocacy. So uh, in the same summer in 2017, I started uh, Science for Progress as a project. And of course, because I was still a, a postdoc at the time, uh, it was a side project. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun and uh, yeah. 
that, that's that's what, how I began the transition. And then uh, when, when the postdoc actually finished, I was on vacation in Australia. <laughs> and, nice. That sounds yeah, fun. That was fun. <laughs> um, it was also fun because for the last time, maybe, uh, I met some of my old friends. Uh, I went to a, con a convention or conference, actually, in uh, Brisbane of the neuroethologists. And that's a field that I feel at home at in. Um, so I, was, I could talk to these people maybe the last time, and I got a lot of uh, positive feedback for my story and a lot of angry people saying, oh, this is so awful, I hear this too often. That, that people feel academia disappointed them so much that they left. Um, yeah, yeah so. I feel that this is kind of like a very common uh, thing, a yes. very common thread. I see that a lot is that uh, I hear, mm -hmm. uh, I see on Twitter people just like, okay, I like it and I wanted to keep doing that but in the end it's kind of like the, the system pushes you away, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you're good at it too, right? That's not, you know, necessarily like, yeah, you could be great, a great scientist, but still just like, eh, you know, not really wanting to stay anymore. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, happens to like, even like future Nobel laureates, right? Like the, one of the people scientists who won for um, GFP, like mm -hmm. when he won the Nobel prize, he was no longer in academia. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah, yeah, but I feel I, I think that uh, my story is kind of like not it's it's very similar. Like uh, when I was in academia, I really I unlike you, I really liked the bench. I liked to do my experiments. I had to do some experiments in the dark as well, but mine were with like a red light, so it wasn't not that bad. <laughs> yeah, but, the red lights didn't help for me. That that didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, I I had a love for research and I really liked what I was doing. But it got to a point I uh, I was here in the U.S. and I did my PhD in Brazil. So all the fellowships and the things that I won, they didn't count. I would put them on my CV, but people would not understand them. Mm -hmm. So they were not valuable. And then uh, my CV was also a big uh, gap on fellowships. And also when I moved to the U.S., I was in a, in a lab that had two R01s. Uh, so for those who are not from NIH base, R01 is like the big uh, five-year uh, multi-million dollar research so and that lasts for like four or five years so our lab had i don't know five people six people and we had two of those grants so i mean it was a lot of money yeah mm -hmm. so no one i didn't apply for anything i didn't i didn't because i didn't have to and no one told me that i needed to apply to to get um for my CV. So once yeah. time passed and then I started to apply for because, oh, you need to apply. And then they were like, okay, you don't have any anything on your CV. Why we yeah. should fund you, you know? And then it comes into like a, 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 a roller coaster of like, okay, you don't have, uh, we won't give you because you don't have, but if I don't have, I won't, won't get anything, you know? Right. It's a catch-22. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I can briefly like talk about my transition too from being a postdoc and it's like I, I like my PhD okay and like you know I always intended to be a scientist and so like you know my PhD was okay like it's like oh yeah I went to a good school at Washington University in St. Louis studied plant developmental biology but it was a hard isolating experience but I did it and it was fine and you know I got to do some interesting things like I was for part of that time in charge of inviting seminar speakers like students like the grad students as a group we'd get together and nominate speakers like hey we can invite a speaker and like and i would be in charge of handling some of the logistics and invitations and doing that kind of stuff um just fun and then i got a postdoc and did that for way too long i feel like because again like there's always a sense of just isolation and like dennis was saying it didn't feel a sense of growth anymore and um, like spent many hours in a dark microscope room with laser beams, as well as some <laughs> experiments like using a green safety light. Well, not safety for like humans, but safe in the sense that plants don't, plants grown in the dark don't like plants don't really see green light very well. And so you can <laughs> use green light as illumination so you can see what you're doing a little bit in a dark room to, you know, harvest your dark grown seedlings. Right. Um, and I spent many hours doing stuff like that, like, you know, growing plants in there, growing Arabidopsis in its quote-unquote natural environment of a Petri dish. Um, <laughs> and, like, you know, it's just, yeah, like, at the end, it's like, you know, I'm not growing here anymore. Like, I got my one big paper out of my postdoc, and that was good. I started writing about science. And, like, I just like, you know, I like exploring the ideas more than actually doing them myself, I think. Um, I still didn't have a good idea of like what I would do out beyond academia besides like try to make it as a science writer, which I think still would be my long term goal. But through Twitter and networking, like I found my job as a virtual lab manager at, um, at Happy Labs, where I work now. And I'm continuing to do like my writing and editing as I can on the side because I do enjoy that. And like I'm still... Like, you know, my science advocacy comes in the form of, like, I'm the editor for, I'm an editor for the National Postdoc Association's newsletter here in the United States. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and so, like, we put out an issue every month and email it to the 30,000 people or so who are subscribed to that list, whatever that number is. Um, yeah, so that's my story in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess I can relate to the not wanting to do bench work anymore. <laughs> tired of doing the bench work that I was doing. I didn't spend hardly any time in the dark. I spent a lot of time. <laughs> most of my time was spent in, underneath fluorescent lights. However, the lab that I was mm -hmm. in for my postdoc had zero windows and was in the interior Ugh. of the building. So. Ugh. Yeah, that's no good. Yes, I did have that. Um, and for me, it was just a realization that I didn't really enjoy doing bench work anymore and um, that I didn't really want to have the whole PI thing where you move away from doing bench work and then you deal a lot more with like administrative paperwork, paperwork and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it became a lot more of this, um, I don't know, like political sort of administrative thing. And what I really liked doing was, um, what I found that I liked doing was I liked editing work. Like, I like being involved at the beginning stages when people are, kind of like how Ian is, like he likes exploring the ideas more than actually doing mm. the work. Or at least I think that's what you said. Yep. Like, 
I like being at the beginning stages when people are planning out a project because everybody's <sighs> really excited about it. And then I like being at the end because everybody's really happy that it's over. The part where it's this long slog of things not working where you could have just stayed in bed all day and at the end of the day had the same exact results because nothing worked Mm -hmm. really got to me so um after doing my postdoc i decided that i would do some editing work because i had gotten a position with bite size bio to edit for them and then i had faculty members who were like hey you can write, you can edit, edit this stuff, and I'll pay you money. Nice. So that was always, that was mm-hmm. kind of a relief at that point. So that's kind of yeah. how I transitioned out. Yeah, I feel cool. like the four of us have kind of like the feeling of relief after yes. we were done. And we, after, there's always like the transition period, like, uh, getting there or where getting to the point where you say okay I am done with this I'm going to finally take the leap and leave academia but that's the transition but then after you decide it and you go there and do it it kind of like feels good Mm -hmm. yes yeah I totally agree with that I mean especially since uh, right now I don't have a boss and the (laughs) project I'm working on is my my own project Mm -hmm. and now I just need to figure out how to make money of it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is the challenge. Um, yeah. That is I mean, always the challenge, yes. Yeah, I do want, of course I want the product, let's call it that, uh, mm-hmm. because we're talking business here, um, to be for free, because it's supposed to be advocacy. Uh, so I want want people to you know, enjoy what I have to say without having to pay for it. Uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I have to live off something, right? Yes. And, Being able to eat and, and put a roof over your head, very important. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and as as you said, um, Ian and Amanda said that they, you, you're doing uh, editing and stuff, and that's something I would like to do too. Mm-hmm. If you go on my website, you will see I already wrote everything down, what I think, how this could be done, but I don't really know what I'm doing there. Uh, yeah so the problem would be how how to find how to find people who want me to edit their stuff so yeah i must say i listened to the episode that ian talked about or you probably had several episodes about it um networking and i very much related with, with the problem of what is networking really and is it really that big of a thing or is it just you know showing up and then if you see somebody interesting saying hello and try to have a conversation and then not forgetting about that person, you know, you write down their address and if, I don't know, connect on LinkedIn or something. Um, and it's not this. So some people make it sound like it's this huge thing. It's like a, it's like another skill. It's like learning to act. <laughs> you know, if you want, some make it sound like you need to learn how to be an actor, as if you're going to Hollywood or something. And, uh, <laughs> that's not that's not it. I I learned that too. And actually, part of uh, why I do my podcast is in order to connect. It's a uh, part of my way to mm-hmm. um, to do networking. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, because yeah. you also interview people there, right? Yes. So um, up to now, it was all interviews. Um, and now that I have more time, I want to increase the amount of episodes that I throw out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you are already doing bi-weekly. I don't know how you do that with, with your jobs. But <laughs> I had, <laughs> my, my mine was uh, every three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm now trying to do it every other week. And then one of them would be an interview and one of them would be me with a co-host uh, talking about the last episode and talking about what's new, uh, these kind of things. Yeah, with the... So. Uh, can you describe, flesh out the podcast that you do a little bit? Like, I mean, what's like the Science for Progress project? Like, what the goal is? Um, so, the, yeah. Um, the that you idea, have in mind is? Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal is that um, to have people who are not academics listen to that, thinking it's interesting and learning something about academia. Mm-hmm. Because I have the feeling that there is not a lot of uh, understanding of what academia is Definitely. and why, yep. why scientists act the way they do. There's a lot of uh, talking mm-hmm. about why scientists would be doing things. And usually it boils down then to us being all in the pockets of somebody. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> at least in certain circles, that's, that's what it ends up. And that's not my experience. Um, right. It's in in fact, at least where I've been, there was rarely any money coming from outside. It was usually public money, and mm-hmm. academic freedom was a thing. <laughs> it exists, uh, but there are a lot of other constraints and things that we deal with, and things that people don't know about. So the goal, and I'm not sure I'm reaching that goal yet is to make the make it interesting not only for academics but also for people interested in academia who want to know why they should support science uh, at the voting booth and with their taxpayer money and um, so that's what I want to do um, and the topics that I've had so far were um, for example, about science communication or uh, a typical job inside academia that is not being a researcher. I had somebody there talking about uh, being a funding consultant inside academia. So she was helping people write uh, write grant applications and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I had the March for Science Germany people for an interview. That was oh, nice. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, these kind of things. And then I tried to do a little bit. Uh, I had one that was about uh, cognitive biases, because I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. something you should be aware of these days when you're reading uh, the news. Oh, yeah. And yes, the horrible so. science science reporting that is going on. You want people to know how to be critical. Yeah, uh, they, they I, decrease everything to the headline. Like, science mm-hmm. says right. that you cannot drink more than two cups of coffee per day exactly (laughs) (laughs) or remember that washington post the cheese one like eat cheese live forever right i was like sweet i'm never gonna die yeah yeah Yeah, so okay no that's awesome um yeah so part of it is trying to give them the tools to to deal with the situation and to understand why we talk the way we talk why it all kind of sounds like we are not certain and why we would change our minds on things um and that's just part of being a scientist 
uh, yes. that, that you change your mind if there's new evidence. Mm -hmm. But what people need to understand is that still the, the mainstream science opinion is usually a pretty sound one based on evidence. And there's usually few alternatives out there that would have any merit compared to the scientific opinion. Right. And whether the picture is complete or not, because some of the things it's, you know, we've had 150 years of like building that up, right? From, you know, like thinking about things like evolution and climate change. Like, you know, we've like scientists have been on top of that, you know, and studying that for over, you know, for hundreds of years now. And it's like, yeah, we've got a pretty solid idea of what's going on, even if there are still questions about how it works. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, in general, this is the picture. Like, and it's a pretty clear one as far sure as we know. Right. Because yeah, there's a lot of still, things. Even like this, there are some uh, like data from like 150 years ago. They, it was not the, the climate change, for instance. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the way that people would um, measure things, the instruments were different from the ones that we have right. now. Right. So it's hard to compare, and a lot of uh, it's it's a lot of that. Even if we've been uh, studying for a long time, it's tough to to get into. Okay, uh, that's why there's so much non consensus about like what is climate change like mm -hmm. that is happening. Yes, but like in uh, in absolute numbers, we right. we can't we cannot say. Right. You know, it's it's impossible. But at the same time, I'm also thinking just the idea that 150 years ago, there was somebody, I, I forget who they were, but somebody was like, hey, Industrial Revolution, we're dumping a lot of stuff into the atmosphere. I wonder if that could change things, and especially with the carbon dioxide, if that's going to heat up the Earth. Like, that was 150 years ago. Like, just that idea was put out there, and scientists right. have since confirmed that pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yep. Again, there's another bit, like, another thing about academia that you might cover on your podcast and this is things like oh well we, so scientists easy research grants to get like yeah you know <laughs> no. the fact that you have like a grant specialist right on and like amanda is the grant editor right mm -hmm. in part mm -hmm. right? Yeah. like th these things are not easy to get or produce nope. the ideas don't come easily for like right. what's worth like putting in and it's always hard to make the case for it's foundational science right just yeah. because you always have to make the case in retrospect, right? It's always like, no, no, 20 years ago, a scientist had this idea in their lab and got a research grant to study it, and now it's everywhere in business and being applied into the real world, right? It's always looking back, it's like, oh, we have GPS because Albert Einstein figured out relativity, right? right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like <laughs> this was like not a practical discovery at the time. It's like, eh, you know, hey. Here's how the universe seems. lasers that weren't a, like, that was not a practical discovery at the time. It was just right. a, hey, let's see how this works. Hey, let's see if this <laughs> Right. Like, that was another thing that came out of relativity, right? It's like, oh, right. like, we could, like, do this thing with light. Right. And let's see, like, let's see, let's see if it, we, we can make, yeah, we see if we can make that, you know, application work. And it's like, oh, it does. Cool. Like, we have no use for it, but it works. Right. And, well, now, like. You know. And then you only will know what is useful uh, a lot of years right. later on, right? Yeah. And now scientists and everyone who has to give a talk uses a laser pointer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we do, True. and we use lasers for surgery. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. I don't. Sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't just dismiss all of lasers to just I having mean, lasers. It's not just a cat toy. No. <laughs> now, now they want to. They even want to push a spaceship through space with a laser, with a laser. now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is to not have a, a spaceship full of uh, fuel, which would be very heavy, and you would have a lot of problems uh, accelerating it because the more you want to accelerate it the more fuel you need and the more fuel you have on board, the harder it is to accelerate. And uh, they want to, the idea is now to just have a huge sail um, and then point a laser at it and push it with the strength of light, which apparently uh, in outer space is enough to accelerate continuously. And they say they can get to a pretty high speed doing that. Um, So... Like that friction. So a thing that is uh, pretty frictionless, huh? Yes, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there is some, right? There's, there's always so, some stuff, but um, yeah. So going back just quickly to like, like the other thing that we like, I think we can do as a recovering academic as a podcast here is, I, I mean, get some sense of what the world of outside of academia is like as a PhD and introduce, um, you know, academia like more people in academia to the broad things that people with PhDs actually end up doing in the mm-hmm. world. Because yeah. a lot of people don't have any clue, like PhD students and postdocs and even professors who might be mentoring them and like, it's like, I don't know what you're going to do outside of academia. Like I have clueless. Mm-hmm. So hopefully our podcast can provide some bridge between those things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, thought, and I, I thought I actually, feel... sorry. Oh, yeah. So I thought this this uh, crossover would be a good idea uh, in part because of that. Uh, so mm-hmm. my goal audience is not academics, but I have a lot of academic uh, listeners, of course. Uh, I don't have a lot of listeners, but most of them are academics. And it, I think it's also important for people outside academia to understand that Inside academia, the people also have their problems, right? We're not the perfect people. A lot of people think we are. Um, we, we have our problems when we try to step outside our own bubbles, mm-hmm. uh, too. So, oh, yeah. Um, right. And the key message you take away from all of this is PhDs are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And we, In the academy, outside. Lot, yeah, and there's a lot of things that we can do uh, besides being in academia but i feel like the the your podcast the the idea it's really nice and i i was here thinking now how how you could uh because it's hard for you to um reach those people like how you can you you pick up those people to listen to your podcast with us we started doing Twitter, and I guess that um, that was how we got it started, and yeah. basically from word to mouth. Um, but what really picked up was after we published the piece on Science Magazine. Oh, yeah. That, is, mm-hmm. that was about a year ago. Um, so mm-hmm. we, we published that piece, and then after that piece, then we were like, we got a huge, I think that our number of downloads, like, doubled in a month (laughs) yes it was like huge um and so this was what happened to us and i don't know how you could um there's so many podcasts out there now it's like uh now it's uh i have a podcast is the new i had a blog 
that it was like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. It seems that Absolutely. everybody has a podcast yeah. and <laughs> and it's so hard uh, to uh, to find uh, to find the, the, the time to, to listen to everything that you want. So it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love podcasts and there's probably too many out there to mm-hmm. possibly listen. So like I tend to dip in and out now of the ones I like a lot. Like some of them I will consume every episode of. Yeah, and the and I don't know, I think that most of the podcasts they are non profit. I think that in mm-hmm. order to get money out of a podcast, it's it, you need to be really, really famous because, yeah. like, at least you can get maybe some sponsors, like mm-hmm. tiny ones, but you have to have like millions of downloads yeah. to yeah. to yes. to kind of like make money out of that, and yeah. and it's it's tough because. Um, any sponsors feel- listening out there, we would all accept sponsorships. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so, Squarespace, you know, are you listening? FYI, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I got just got the message that Amanda is leaving uh, soon. Mm-hmm. So maybe I get one question in for you just mm-hmm. before you leave. Uh, I wanted to know from you what you learned from doing this podcast. So uh, you had a lot of people coming uh, for interviews and you've been talking among each other a lot. What what was the main thing that you took out of this? What did you learn? So for me, it was that um, no matter how you feel, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who have the same conflicted feelings that you might have and that everybody comes through those feelings on the other side and they come out generally much happier than they were them before. Do you have a, a episode that you like the most? <laughs> Except this one. Except, I was going to say, this one's my favorite so far. Um, I think I really like our pilot. That's one of the ones mm-hmm. that I've really oh, enjoyed. Wow. And I've listened to that one again. Despite the sound having been so bad. <laughs> and the sound's not so bad, but I really liked, um, it was a good introduction to our entire podcast, so I liked it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I feel like uh, I also, uh, I like the pilot, and but uh, all of our episodes, we, we, we normally like, you, you, Dennis was all kind of like worried about what we were going to say and what we were, was going to be the, the, the schedule of our podcast. And we we're like, uh, we just open Skype, we choose a topic and we talk and that's yes. it. <laughs> so it's usually a lot of fun, you know, it's kind of like even it's our time that we, it's almost as we were sit down in a bar. Uh, having a drink and just discussing science and we are recording so all of them are kind of like a different type of fun yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I just wanted to make sure that because you said uh, everybody has little time that uh, we get to talk about the things that we want to talk Uh, it was not really like a program I never (laughs) I never I never have a program Uh, I just usually I have a list of questions that I want answered um, but I don't go, yeah. so I have a conversation with my interviewees, which you don't often notice because after the editing, it's mostly them talking and me just throwing in a question. But while we are recording, it is a, a proper conversation, usually. <laughs> That's nice. Well, I guess that this is a good time to finish, uh, to wrap up. 
uh, today's episode. Thank you, Dennis, for coming. And Thank how can people please uh, tell us your Twitter handle and how they can subscribe to your podcast? Okay, so um, Science for Progress is the name of my project. And you can find us on Twitter at uh, under at sci for progress that SCI and then for progress in one word. Um, you can find our website, scienceforprogress.eu, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and Blueberry and Spotify and with our RSS feed. <laughs> or you can just uh, look it up on our website. <laughs> yeah, we'll add it into the show notes. Right, well, yes. yes it'll definitely be in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. put you into thank mine too, of course. Brilliant. Yes, thank you. Thank you all for listening and see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Our music is from bensound.com under a Creative Commons license. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps other people find out about us. You can tweet the show at RecoveringAcad. You can also find all of the hosts on Twitter. I'm at LadyScientist. I'm at Dr. Underscore PMS. And I'm at IH Street. We're also on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash recovering academic podcast. You can find all of our episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at recoveringacademic.net. And don't forget, there is sunshine outside the ivory tower. <laughs>